Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. We come to the end of a week of marathon litigating in the Senate that has been, depending on whom you talk to, brilliant, a tour de force, devastating for the president, or boring, uneventful, and repetitious. Adam Schiff and the House managers have stood in the well some 24 hours and offered a tightly organized recapitulation of the evidence that resulted in the president's impeachment on two articles, complete with exhibits and snippets of previous testimony that seemed to leave no doubt of the charges in most observers' minds, except those of the decision makers who hold Trump's fate in his hands and appear poised overall to vote to acquit perhaps as soon as next week. I'm Harry Littman, former U.S. Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and current Washington Post columnist. And I'm here taping live in New York City with several feds and others calling in to analyze the week's events and foretell what comes next. We've got a great, outstanding group of feds and prominent commentators, and let's get right to them, beginning with Paul Fishman, a charter fed, from our very first show. He's a partner at Arnold and Porter and the immediate past United States attorney for the District of New Jersey. After a highly successful career as a line prosecutor, Paul held many positions at the department, including the principal associate deputy attorney general, meaning basically uh, the eyes and ears of the deputy and AG, a critically important position. Thanks for returning, Paul. It's, it's great to be back. Second, Ann Milgram, a first-time uh, visitor to the to Talking Fed. She is the professor of practice and distinguished scholar-in-residence at NYU Law School, as well as a special counsel at Lowenstein-Sandler. From 2007 to 2010, she was the Attorney General of New Jersey, and she has been, in her distinguished career, a state, federal, and local prosecutor, and in her federal time received the United States Department of Justice's Director's Award, which is a big deal. Um, she's a frequent co-host with Preet Bharara of the Stay Tuned podcast, and in her current work does quite a bit. She's a pioneer, really, in efforts to reform the criminal justice system through smart data, analytics, and technology. We've been trying to get her on the show for months, so we're really pleased that she's able to make it. And thanks so much, so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, next, Asha Rangappa, who is calling in, uh, returns to Talking Feds. She's well known, of course, to CNN watchers, where she's a regular commentator. Asha's a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Uh, she was an FBI special agent right here in New York City, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. So she is one tough fed. Uh, Asha, thanks very much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And finally, Todd Purdom generously joins us from Washington, D.C., where he has been observing the Senate trial in person in cramped seats all week. One of the most uh, one of the country's most prominent political commentators and authors. Todd currently writes at The Atlantic. He's held many positions at leading publications, including serving as the White House correspondent for The New York Times and the national editor for Vanity Fair. 
Welcome, Todd, from Washington. Very glad to be with you, Harry. Thanks. Okay, so let's dive in. You know, we're mainly lawyers here, and so let's let's first think about this through the prism of the actual lawyering that's that's gone on on the part both of the house uh, managers uh, and the uh, lawyers for the White House. So first. Well, I guess as former prosecutors, does everyone here sort of share the view of uh, Schiff as having basically um, been at totally at the top of his game and and near magnificent in marshalling all the evidence and presenting it uh, eloquently? Has he has that it's been about as good as it could be? Any any dissents from that? I'm with you on that. This is Anne. Um, and I will say I watched him Thursday night give that closing argument yeah. for sort of the 10 minutes where he didn't use notes. He didn't really look down. He never uses notes, but this guy. This was a moment where he just, I thought he was so authentic and in the zone where he, he quoted Vindman, Alexand- Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel yeah. Alexander Vindman, talking about right matters and why the president should be removed from office. And he, to me, sort of, he, he broke through in a way that I hadn't seen him do. And I thought he, he was excellent. Um, and I'm 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 generally I thought he was very good in the house. I've been a critic of him on some things yeah. like his sort of extemporaneous paraphrasing of the initial memorandum of the call. But I thought he was he was absolutely fantastic. Paul, I mean, you've been an extensive trial lawyer. I, I felt that, you know, the, the admiration and specifically what Anne is talking about, how he was so pellucid all the way through, but then could up it, you know, in general, the White House lawyers are operating at this very high rhetorical point of almost hysteria, and he's very smooth, except I was really mesmerized by his, the punctuation, the the overall dynamism of when he would bring it up and be eloquent just just enough, and apparently, as you say, almost extemporaneous. Well, first of all, I got to compliment you on the use of the word "pellucid" in the middle of, <laughs> in the middle of that la- in the middle of whatever I, that was. I, was a question I wouldn't or not. do that in front uh, of a jury. No, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, but but what I what I thought was great about it. So I've been watching off and on, uh, trying to see how they present themselves, not just what they say, but what they look like as trial lawyers. And one of the unfortunate things about the television graphic is that the camera's almost over their head. Totally. So they're all, so they always look like they're looking down and and one of the things that I've always hated are basically flat lecterns because when you're talking to a jury you never want to be looking straight down you want something angled and so they've lost that but that's what was one of the things that was great and why Ann was so moved by his inability his his, his un, uh, the lack of necessity of his using notes last night because he was able to look around the chamber to talk to the senators about what he really meant and you know in every trial whenever you see a trial lawyer you're looking to see not just are they right, but do they believe in their yeah. case? Is there something that makes you really know that they're that they that what they are saying is actually something they feel? And you could tell last night when he finished, and he almost choked up a little bit at the end, that he really believed what he was saying. I happen to share his belief, but I thought he delivered yeah. remarkably well. Todd, did you sort of feel that in the room? Was it was there a kind of electricity and shiver down the spine, even after so many hours? I had left the room by that point. I was, <laughs> because I was, I was, uh, Did you get permission? Really long. I don't have to get permission, okay. but I, I gave myself permission. Uh-huh. But I watched it on television, and I was incredibly uh, moved by it. I spent some time in California covering Congressman Schiff last month, and he's impressive in person. I first met him 
19 years ago when he ran for Congress, running against Jim Rogan, who'd been one of the Clinton impeachment managers, and Schiff won on the district backlash against Rogan's role. So, you know, let's remember, he was a reluctant convert to the impeachment cause, and it wasn't until the Ukraine call came to light that he thought this had to go forward. And he's, I think he's done a fantastic job of leading his staff. He, is, he does use notes sometimes. You can see looking down that he has a three-ring binder of very carefully organized material. But he's a, a very good extemporaneous speaker. He speaks in perfect paragraphs and sentences. Uh, I agree with Anne that his one misstep might have been the, the satirical summary of that uh, initial call. But he's been pretty pitch perfect since. Yeah, the pitch perfect is is a really good word. Asha, I mean, wh- who who do you see as his kind of intended audience? Though I, you know, you have these senators seemingly Im- impassive and unmoved, but. Is he speaking to the American people, to, to history, or just doing his best? Yeah, with I mean, I, I think his audience was posterity. Uh-huh. I mean, I, you know, his speech to me was memorializing the fact that we fought for this, whatever comes after. And I think his closing was actually quite chilling in a way because he... He said, you know, he he really conveyed, this is a dangerous man. And there was a way in which he he handed the responsibility over to the Senate and said, you know you cannot count on him. And it was saying, whatever comes after this, whatever happens to this republic that we have, you had a chance to to save it. And... It was both, like, it made me proud because I felt like, you know, people will look back. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm having catastrophic nightmares at this point. But um, they will look back, and, and at least somebody stood up and fought for it. And I feel like that was, you know, that was the audience. I mean, definitely, the senator is definitely the American public, but there was a way of memorializing what it is we were fighting for, whose responsibility it was uh, ultimately to take the action that is necessary to, you know, protect the ideals that we're about. That was that was what I took away from it and why it was so powerful to me. Okay, and do people uh, agree? What about, I mean, it does seem that he understands. What, one of the things that have been really impre- impressive about his arguments is, is he knows he's talking to people who are unmoved, and he periodically will make these kinds of arguments, as Asha's just laid out, about, you know, you had a chance, et cetera, et cetera. But to the extent he's talking, not for posterity, I agree he is in part, but to the American people, you know, he's so damn good. Has He would move a jury. Has he? Do you have a sense of whether he's moved the American people at all? Well, the polling continues to keep rising for the number of people in the public who are, to the degree that it can be measured, who want witnesses. It isn't clear that's happening in the Senate. In fact, Senator Murkowski suggested last night she was getting tired of the length of the arguments. Ugh. Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana told a group of us in the Senate subway this morning, very few souls are saved after the first 20 minutes of a sermon. Uh, so they're getting tired and antsy. But I think, just to second something that Asha said, he's talking to posterity, but he's also appealing to the private shame of these senators. He knows that if they could cast a secret ballot, a lot of these Republicans and maybe 67 uh, senators would vote to get rid of the president because if if you put, you know, bamboo under their fingernails, they would all say that he'd done something wrong or most of them would. 
Well, just I put think, him on truth serum. You don't, you know. Yes, I think Congressman Schiff knows that, and so he, the, the thing about the very last words you said. If, if you know if right doesn't matter, we are lost. Yeah. That had a 19th century elegiac air to me. It sounded you know worthy of being said in the Senate chamber, and didn't it? Really yeah. Quite, yeah, you can see it as the title of well, the of the chapter or whatever. Well, it is kind of weird. It, it, it may be interesting that you know that started yeah. off on on Wednesday with Jerry Nadler taking that sort of extremely unhappy moment for the for the chief justice where he was really calling the other the, the Republican senators treacherous for not voting to to subpoena witnesses and had and was dressed down as were the president's lawyers for the way they were talking about stuff yesterday was really different i mean not only shifts elegance but i thought zoe lofgren was fabulous i mean i, I you know i had never I seen crow her was good too. i thought crow was yeah. good but but zoe lofgren sort of has that sort of columbo like persona for for, <laughs> she for right shambling you know, she, brilliance. She, well yeah. she's she you know she yeah and and what i loved about what she did was when schiff was saying you and he was talking to the, to the centers as you she kept using the word us which I thought was really very effective. She kept saying, basically, we and we deserved something different from the president. We voted for this. You and I voted for this. We voted to appropriate these funds. And the president, when he didn't spend, he was doing something to us. I thought that was a very nice way of bringing them in to her world and showing that she really sympathized with their plight in some way. And actually, I actually thought that one of the ways Schiff did breakthrough last night was that he he did the same thing. He said us. And, you know, it's so important to make it not just the problem of the hundred people sitting there, but to make it a national problem. Um, I, one, one other point just to make is I agree that Schiff was talking on all those levels. I think he's also really talking to the four senators who mm-hmm. the Democrats need their vote for in order to get witnesses and documents. And look, they need 67 votes to remove. So he knows there's a hand, there's a group of senators he's never going to get. But he was trying to appeal, I think. And they've already appealed in some ways. When Todd talks about the polls are moving on the documents and witnesses, that is, in my view, because Americans have a very strong, innate sense of fundamental fairness. And so I yeah. think Schiff was, was trying to go beyond partisan politics, which it has worked to the president's advantage to make this feel very partisan, like Democrat versus Republican. And I think Schiff was trying to say... Look, right matters, and and beyond that, like appeal to this fundamental fairness question. If at least to those four senators for the yeah. votes, and we'll move to yeah, witnesses I, in a second. Well, go ahead, Asha. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to add um, in terms of the you know the speaking about us. Um, I thought that there was also with most of the presenters, they they seem to have this common theme of ending with a, an appeal to civic-mindedness and shared values, um, shared democratic values. And I thought this was a very effective psychological tactic because what it does is it shifts the frame from you are voting against a person to you are voting for something that we all believe in. Um, And there's actually social science research that suggests that appeals to civic-mindedness can actually loosen the tribal affiliations that we hold, which is really what what he is battling in this case, right? Um, so I, I don't know whether it will work, but I thought it was um, a way, a very good way of trying to avoid kind of ending with the demonization of Trump. I mean, that could, they could have gone in that direction, but instead of doing that, they kind of raised the the rhetoric and um, I and, and ended on this kind of sense of ideals. Agreed. Um, all right. Well, let's move a, a little bit before we go to witnesses to an, an assessment of the, the Trump lawyers. Now, 
we've we've just learned that that they'll have only a short presentation uh, tomorrow and pick up uh, Monday, Tuesday. This being today being Friday, but um, still we've we've seen a lot of them. And you know, I I, I well, I was going to say I don't mean to trash them as I as I begin to trash them, but I mean not from a partisan standpoint. What the hell are they doing, really? It doesn't. It seems that it's not really lawyering. It it really just seems like like adopting a kind of emotional tone, a sort of outraged or snide tone. Why is it? Do you do you? I mean, it, does it seem like that's a smart strategic move? Uh, and and uh, that's you know that that or is it playing to the the president does it to, as a lawyer it seemed you know you you would know a judge would shut it down right away you can only imagine what the chief justice is thinking as they're they're up there you know spewing all this stuff but what are they doing and i don't mean i don't mean that rhetor- you know rhetorically do they have a, a any kind of method to the madness I think they're speaking to the president first and foremost. Yeah. I mean, and why, why Todd? Why, why is that their choice? I mean, and, and all these because things. because they know that he won't be happy with their performance unless he's happy with their performance. I mean, they no one in Donald Trump's orbit can do anything other than please him and last long in his service. So, I think they feel the liberty to do that because they feel the the case the cake is baked and the case yeah. is won and so they can just go and not even really take the defense of the president particularly seriously as you notice they're not quarreling with the facts that they haven't been quarreling with the facts right along the president can stand up and say we have all the information and they don't the house doesn't even have the information so they're just sort of brazen Whoa. about it <laughs> yeah. but you're you're right that they are counting on the fact that chief justice roberts is adopting this kind of magisterial, ministerial role and not acting in, in the sense of a judge who would intervene, you know, and, yeah. and sanction sides. But so everyone agreed there that they're doing this in order to placate or play to the president, who in some ways is the really not an important, I mean, he's the client here, he's the defendant, but he's not the decision maker. But look, they have the luxury yeah. in their own minds of being up by 25 points with two minutes to go on the right. clock, right? They don't see any way that they lose. So their strategy isn't motivated by the need to persuade. They're not going to, they don't right. need to persuade the House managers. They don't need to persuade their Democrats, their Democrat, the Democrats in the Senate. The public is either there or not there if they're, if lots of them are paying attention at all. And so I think that that's right. They're, they, they have one audience. I want to add. You don't think they're at risk of losing the public a little bit? They seem like, you know, creepy. I don't know if they're worried about the public, right? I think they're they're focused on the president and the president's base. But I do and think— And why? And, and, well, just yeah, to, I mean, to, I, for what Todd says. Well, there's a couple of things. One is the president is their client, and, and Todd's read is exactly what we've seen countless times, that people, you know, if, if you work for Donald Trump, you have to play by his rules. But there are two other things that you see consistently in the administration that I've seen here, and it is— there's always another. You're always vilifying somebody else, and you're always playing 100% offense. So some of this snide dismissal of, like, none of this matters is part of the playbook, which is like, ugh, you have nothing. This is all— So by offense, it, you mean you're, you're, yes. you're smearing the Dems. Or, exactly. Yeah. Get just this is unconstitutional. There's no due process. You have no case. This is all a witch hunt. All, it's a sham. And so I think some of it is to be seen through that. Now, let me just say one thing, which is I was a congressional page— I worked for a United States senator for a period of time. I can't believe that the level of decorum is so low. And when, you know, the White House counsel 
said something completely false about yeah, what about that that I, I can't get over it and I know like you know a lot of people would say I can't believe you're surprised by that but I really feel like I don't care if you're a hired lawyer and by the way Pat Cipollone who said it he's not a hired he he's in, isn't hired he works for us as the American right. public for him to get up there and say that the Republicans weren't allowed in the skiff it just it was one of those moments for me where I was like look we can disagree we can disagree on a number of things but to actually stand in the well of the United States Senate and say something that we all know is false and that, he had to know, right? That There's no way that's a slip. And, and, and I was a congressional page, too, 42 years ago this <laughs> summer. And I thought one of Schiff's greatest moments was when he said, I'm not going to say that the White House counsel is telling an untruth, but he's mistaken. Yes, yeah. I thought that was he's a mistaken. brilliant moment. And he said it in this mournful tone. Of yes, life. yes. Yeah. Well, they've been perpetrating that from the, from the time that Schiff was holding those hearings in the skiff, right? That people yeah. couldn't get in. Since, they weren't since in. the pizza party. Right. But yeah, it doesn't were. add to the defense even. Like, it's one of those things where if we all sat around and thought, is this an effective way to defend the president? That that sort of line of argument, it, it doesn't uh, – to me, th- there are many, many other arguments that, that they've made that do not require them to actually stand there and tell something that Definitely. is not true. I mean, again, if you, I mean, he could be sanctioned for, for, for this if he were in a court. He, he might be. So if, if we posit this as purposeful – and it's hard to it's kind of hard to posit it either way. Then I mean, it's like, wow, here's the way really to serve the client: just do a blatant lie. He loves those. Is although, that- you, although you do wonder if you're going to pick a blatant lie, why that one? Yeah, I mean, the one that's so. I mean, there are lots of things you can um, perpetrate or perpetuate as lies as the president's lawyers. The president does it all the time. Right. Why that one? That one strike because it's so obviously wrong, and Schiff was so well, ready I, to rebut him. Yeah, Asha, what do you... I'll answer that. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things you cannot discount with this administration is that these lawyers are not working in isolation. They are a part of an entire disinformation apparatus. Good point. Um, of which the president is a part, Fox News is a part, uh, many you know Republican congressmen are a part. So the answer to why would they tell this lie is this is their narrative. They cannot stray from the narrative. And, I mean, if you watch, you know, the shows where these people come on, there will be a talking point that is said at 6 o'clock in the morning, and it is repeated all the way until, you know, midnight that night, verbatim by a million different people. It is a coordinated effort, and this defense strategy is one piece of that. And I do think that one thing we need to be worried about in this, you know, the uninterrupted presentation of the defense's case um, is that they are going to have uninterrupted airtime to basically lay out their alternative fact world. Um, You know, the Breitbart Fox News uh, version of things. Um, I mean, I guarantee you're going to hear Ukraine server and, you know, Hunter Biden and God knows what else. Um, And so, I mean, you know, it's just that it's part of a coordinated effort. I think what made the House manager presentation so jarring for some people is that they, too, had the uninterrupted chance um, to present a narrative that wasn't punctuated with, you know, conspiracy theories or, you know, la-la land distractions. Um, but unfortunately the defense is going to get the last word in this case. So we'll see. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, you imagine Schiff and company 
being in a war room and really thinking it through. But if you if you think about uh, uh, Pat Cipollone and others, uh, you know, devising this. And by the way, there are some credible lawyers on his side. I, I don't put like Sekolo or you know, or uh, but but where do you the put people, where do you put Dershowitz? Not not in the credible list, but Pat Philbin and some. I mean, there were some people who could have who were more sophisticated and understand how crass and and unlawyerly this is. But you're totally right because it's it's sort of hatched in the same little you know silo that 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 brings us the you know alternative facts every every night on Fox. All right, uh, before we get to witnesses, just a quick. Um, Thought about the uh, the Republican senator's comportment. We have, you know, 22 of them not being around. We, speaking of Princeton, we have Senator uh, Cruz proposing a drinking game because it's also uh, uh, boring and calling it all repetitive. I understand that the verdict, the ultimate outcome is assured but it is again is there no worry that at the margins including at the margins looking ahead to november you know the 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 people on in the base who might be peeled off that their general you know indif- indifference and high-handedness uh will will matter or maybe in fact quite to the contrary it's like hooray that's what we want our our senators to do is is leave and show contempt there's a level of, of it that surprises me. I mean, and part of it is that we're all trial lawyers and we've all been prosecutors. Yeah. And, you know, a juror doesn't get to leave. Right. And right. so, like, there's a part of it for me that's like, huh, how does that work? Like, you're not you're missing some of the evidence. And some of it is obviously, you know, I have no issue with the senator standing up and walking around. It's a long time to sit. But this is walking out of the chambers. This is one of the senators doing a TV interview. It's I mean, showing contempt. It is. It is. And there's a smugness to, like, being above listening to the evidence that I I. It ha- I have a problem with it. What's interesting is the question you asked, which is, will their constituents hold them accountable, no matter what the result is, for actually not paying attention to the evidence and the facts? And so, you know, but I do think it's weird when, and it, this is also thing I don't like, is I would like them to show us the senators. Right. right? That too, yeah. You but know? They, and you can see them in there. I mean, but I Todd, wonder, what's but your... Who's, who's out? Who's been out, though, right? Are they people... 22. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, I know they're yeah. 22. Oh, but, oh, they but don't have a threat right, on their Right, exactly. Hands. The question is, which states are they from? Right. Uh, is it, a, you know, is it a Republican from Indiana, for example? Is it a... And, uh, is there any real risk? And, and look, and at the end of the day, they can all say, A, it was repetitive. B, I'd heard it before. C, I can watch it on TV. So they have an answer for their constituents, but I don't think the constituents for those senators are probably going to care. The one who I thought was sort of interesting this morning was Lamar Alexander, saying the evidence was overwhelming. Now, the question is, is that just a quantity of evidence, or does he find it persuasive? Right. And what is that going to—and does that mean he doesn't need to hear witnesses, or he now wants to hear the explanation? Yeah. It's sort of hard to know. It's very cleverly phrased, but but, yeah. but he's obviously been there the whole time. I mean, Todd, thinking about this politically, look, if, if Trump is not uh, elected— it reelected in November. There's a stratum of voters who, who voted for him in 2016 and who will, uh, uh, you know, depart from him in November. We we know who they are more or less demographically, whose votes may be up for grabs and who aren't. If you think about that, that cadre of of possible defectors. You know, doesn't don't you have to worry as Republicans that you want to at least show you're taking this uh, seriously or to the contrary? Things are so polarized that the way to the way to, um, you, you know, actually animate your voters is to thumb your nose at the whole thing. 
Well, I think what was suggested earlier is right. It's one thing if you're Ted Cruz or Rand Paul in a safely you know, red state, if you're Cory Gardner or if you're someone who's more worried like Susan Collins. Uh, Susan Collins has been there absolutely diligently right. taking notes taking all the notes, time. Yeah. Let's, let's remember it was mm-hmm. Susan Collins, we later learned, who sent the note to the Republican secretary to the chief justice that resulted in his admonition. She, she was uh, uh, upset because yeah. she knew that in normal Senate discourse, uh, those remarks would have been uh, – they would have been a move to strike the remarks. What is so unnerving for me, having spent a lot of time you know, off and on over the past 25 years covering the Senate, is that all the rubrics and forms of civility and discourse are still in place, but but the, the comic spectacle unfolding on the Senate floor is so at odds with those traditions yeah. that that yes they're paying obeisance sort of to the to the ritual and every morning the sergeant at arms intones hear ye hear ye you know on pain of imprisonment you must remain silent and but but it, it's like opera buffa what's going on instead, and and I do nice. think it's a scandal that there can't be C-SPAN cameras panning the floor, that you can't see what people are doing because you know there's been a whole parlor game among the reporters in the gallery looking down. Rand Paul the other day was doodling, drawing notes, SOS. Uh, these are not my parents, as if he were being held hostage. Uh, you know, and it, this is not a joke. So I think, you know, I think that's really a disservice. And in, the other thing that the viewers can't see, the spectator galleries, I'm sitting right outside them now, are almost empty. And I've been told that's because the sergeant at arms gave each member's office only a handful of tickets, and they didn't want disruptions among the spectators in the Clinton impeachment. The galleries were packed. Right. Another small note, the ticket that you have every day to enter the gallery, printed on yellow cardboard with a black border, very solid looking, it says everything but the purpose of the hearing. It does not say the impeachment of Donald J. Trump. And in the case of Bill Clinton, the tickets very clearly did. So it's almost as if the Republican administration of the Senate doesn't want to even acknowledge what's happening. Wow, that is, that is that is really interesting. Well, maybe it's, so, not, I, I have, it's not that they're not acknowledging what's happening. They don't want that memento out there. Maybe that, well, right, exactly right, for right, sale on eBay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's uh, it, yeah. It, it's it's very valuable. Um, okay. I, this is, by the way, going to start getting pretty interesting. The you know individual centers and including the C-SPAN camera con- content. Once senators begin to ask questions, which we figure could be Tuesday or so. I. You know, I don't even know this. The, they're they're writing they them written? down. Yeah, no, they'll, they'll write yeah. them down. But will will the, the chief, chief justice, justice is going to read them? I think he'll read them. But will he not say who has who has uh, authored who them? The, who, I think he, I think they're doing that. Yeah, yeah. And they're but, but I don't think even the senators so, will ask even, them themselves. Right? No, no, no. But even so, will there be no uh, panning to the senator yeah. who asked the question? It doesn't sound what like it. What kind of TV is that? Right. Okay. I, but that right. does, but that does raise but a even really, so yeah but does raise a really interesting question. So strategically. Right. I know you wanted maybe you wanted to get to witnesses first, but since no, no, you brought no, up questions. No. So if you're a Democratic senator, okay, if you're and if you're somebody if you're somebody like Cory Booker, if you're somebody like Kamala Harris, who is not running for president anymore and has a chance to ask the questions that they might want to ask without that piece of strategy in their heads, or other folks who are who, you know, if you're Chuck Schumer, do you ask a question of the House managers? Or do you ask a question of the president's lawyers? Yeah. And and what kinds of questions do you ask? How leading do you make them? And how and how much wiggle room do you give people? Do you ask, for example, do you say to the the house to the to the president's lawyers, why is it that the that people shouldn't be interested in the fact that the president impounded funds? Let's forget about whether it's that we everybody in the Senate thought it was a great idea. Why did the president think it was okay? Is that the question you ask, or do you ask uh, uh, questions of the 
of the House managers designed to reinforce the evidence that you found particularly moving yeah. or that you found particularly helpful? I so it's such an interesting question in my mind, too, because just in the context of what Todd was just saying, it makes me wonder you know, will those questions be answered? If if you ask a question of the Democratic House managers, do you get the sort of asked and answered? You know, is there an effort to try to curtail those questions or can you use that time to basically argue your case more? I also think it's a little bit strategically risky because they have now spoken for 24 hours and really put a lot of the testimony, the videos into evidence. But it's a it's a great, it's a really interesting thought yeah, exercise. Yeah, that'll be great. Um, all right, so let's turn to witnesses. Ash, I'm going to serve this up to you in the first instance. The um, supposed back and forth debate within the Dems is, is whether they should accept uh, a uh, some kind of bargain in which they get a witness or two, and the Republicans get to choose a you know a witness or two, and and implicit is rules of relevancy uh, don't really apply. So it could be Hunter uh, Biden or, I don't know, Hillary Clinton. That's all. Um, what uh, should they, you know, but if, if the Republicans seem, um, well, I, I'll just stop there. What do you think the strategy should uh, should be? How far should they go in order to have, say, a Bolton uh, testify? I mean, if the question is, should they make a deal about calling Hunter Biden in exchange for getting John Bolton, my my opinion is no, absolutely not. Um, because of what I mentioned earlier, that, you know, this particular, you know, they, they there is a whole disinformation apparatus happening here. And I think the last thing that you want is for the Senate trial to basically become the backup way that they get their, you know, disinformation, you know, suspicion bubble over Biden because Trump failed to do it with his attempt in Ukraine. I mean, that's kind of how I see it. Um, and so, you know, Hunter Biden is not relevant to this question. Yes. And I also think that, you know, you also have some wild cards with these witnesses in terms of, you know, are they going to actually talk? Are they going to pull some, you know, I don't know, legal sleight of hand? Is the White House going to do something? Is the you know, are the Republicans going to try to pull the rug out from under? I, I just don't think that you are you're getting any kind of guaranteed bang for your buck. Um, and the downsides are very low. And the the case as it stands is incredibly compelling. So you know, in an ideal world, you would have those witnesses. But I don't think that you you know we should compromise. The, the standards that would have, we would ideally like to apply in a full and fair process uh, in order to get some kind of, you know, outcome. Right. Plus, yeah. aren't, you, plus aren't you, aren't the Democrats better off with what is effectively the Senate version of the missing witness instruction? Right. You know, if you if you if there's somebody who could have been called by somebody at trial and the person didn't call that witness, you can often ask the court for an adverse inference. As to, you know, if the witness had testified, he wouldn't have helped that people. Those and so here you have that phenomenon, right? Everybody knows if John, I mean, John Bolton actually is not so predictable. So who knows yeah, exactly yeah. what he would say anyway? But at the moment, the table is set for the Democrats to say if any of those witnesses, Davies or Bolton or or the chief of staff or Pompeo, if any of those people would have helped the president 
he would have authorized them to speak because he really doesn't care about executive privilege as a legal doctrine. He only cares about it if it protects him. Right. And so I think they're better off with that, especially given all the considerations that Asha was describing involving the sort of ridiculousness of having Hunter Biden testimony, having him that testimony even appear to be relevant. I saw you shaking your head in. I'm totally with Paul and, and Asha on this. I would I would never agree to that. Number one, he is not relevant. Even if everything the president alleged about Hunter Biden was true, it's still not relevant to this proceeding and to whether or not the president did something wrong. Second, I also think that, you know, this is in the the Republicans are trying to create this sort of false equivalency of, well, there's wrong on both sides. Right. And to the extent that you have Hunter Biden testify, it creates this sideshow and it does make it about. You know, there's he was he doing something wrong? He'll answer all the he would answer all the questions, no, or whatever his his actual answers were. But it still is going to look terrible. And it will let Americans sort of throw up their hands and say, yeah, you know, Ugh, I don't know. Um, and finally, to Paul's point, look, I've had those adverse statements against like for missing documents when I was a local prosecutor in Manhattan for missing witnesses. And it's painful to listen to because. What the judge is essentially telling people is this goes against you, that they had evidence that was relevant and important, and that's being hidden for some reason. And it, it's done. It's almost said like intentionally, which I think we all would would think is fair here. And so I think it's I don't see any version of that that's formally done. But I think implicit in, in sort of how the public is now seeing that, I think people do understand, like, look, there are people who have relevant information. Why would they not come forward? Why would the Senate not let them come forward? And at the end of the day, I think the Senate pays for that. Todd, have you been doing any uh, reporting on this? Do you have a sense of where the Dems are trending? A little bit. And first of all, I, I defer to the lawyers' judgments about the divisibility legally of a Biden-Bolton swap, but it's not going to happen. Senator Schumer's made it pretty clear it's not going to happen. Uh-huh. It's not on the table. The one political utility I could see in making it a gambit is that there are plenty of Republicans who do not want that to happen either because they think it'll be a spectacle and it would make the floor of the Senate look like a clown car. Remember, 21 years ago, Trent Lott was terribly worried about the prospect that some Republican firebrands wanted to bring Bill Clinton himself into the well of the House to talk about his sexual encounters with Monica Lewinsky and to have Monica Lewinsky deposed in the well of the House uh, or be a witness there. So the compromise was to have her appear by videotape, excerpts of her comments and so forth. Uh, There's not that similar fear of salaciousness now, but I think there are many sober-minded Republicans who would not want Hunter Biden or their former colleague Joe Biden testifying in the Senate. So I think it's become a kind of political jousting game it's not going to happen. But what what does seem to be happening over the past 48 hours is I would have said three days ago that the prospect of those four senators, Republican senators voting to call witnesses was pretty high. Now you hear things like Senator Murkowski saying last night, well, you know, maybe we have enough. They've been going on so long. And the, the talking point of the Republicans today in the corridors and the subway has been well, we don't want to get into protracted legal fight over executive privilege, and if we call Bolton, it'll get tied up in the courts. And then there is, I mean, this is a question for you lawyers that I do find fascinating. What if, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, as the presiding officer of this trial, is asked to subpoena Bolton, and he does, and Bolton resists? Does he make a ruling as the presiding officer of the impeachment trial when the case may be making its way right across the street to the Supreme Court? Does he sit on both cases? Can, does he have to recuse himself from the court? Would the, would the eight remaining justices compel the president's you know, uh, production of Bolton? I, I don't know. It's real. That, to me, that would be a constitutional crisis. And, well, and there's all kinds of variations of that. I actually have uh, st- you know, distinct views on this, and I think they are 
a little bit against the grain as I as I understand it. But, you know, I think the Senate trial is just, a, a, you know, a court, a jury and everything unto itself. And the constitutional scheme just has it decide, including we'll get to Roberts in a second. But whatever they say, if they decide, if 51 say obviously relevant evidence is, is irrelevant evidence is relevant, it is for per- but that has no precedential um, uh, power. But you know, and likewise, I think even for executive privilege, I think if Trump runs to court. The proper answer that might take a little while to get is this is not this is not our call. The Senate decides. Now, what if it falls to Roberts? So uh, it looks like Paul has at least one eyebrow up. So he might we might have a, a little polite conversation about this. But um, what if it goes to Roberts? It's also my read. I think I'll, I might get both of his eyebrows up now that it he's the presiding officer. He makes the call, including on executive privilege, including on relevancy. However, it has no precedential uh, value outside of the Senate. It doesn't require his recusal later. He's just the presiding officer here, and that's the unavoidable uh, scheme. But it can get pretty messy pretty fast. Paul, you want to take me on here? Uh, <laughs> no, this is this is like... This is just this. I see. I see a ripple effect in a whirlpool. I try to figure out exactly which way things play out. So, first of all, keep in mind, John Roberts has never been a trial judge. Well, let's start right there. He has never been in a place where someone has said objection, and he said to say sustained or overruled. Never. That's so. That's first. Second. I have a hard time imagining John Roberts actually deciding that he wants to rule on an objection like that. But I, what oh, I, I do think is interesting is whether he would dis, whether he would say who should, right? So does he say, this is for the Senate to vote on and I can't decide? Does he say, this is for the Supreme Court to decide and I can't decide? I think at some point he'll sort of have to give an indication of whom, who he thinks is the, is the right place to have that adjudication in the I end, think he'll right? say it's the Senate if they get to 51. But if they but get if to 51. 50, but if, if they, they get to 51, what they but, say goes. Would the president defy the chief justice and the 51 votes of the Senate? What would happen then? Depends what you say. I think he would go yeah. to court and be quickly... Uh, tossed out. Other people see a month's delay because the Senate, excuse me, the the judiciary uh, branch has to decide executive privilege. I disagree. I think on any matter, even a grave one, if the Senate, if senators, if 51 senators say, you know, noon is midnight and God knows they might, it's midnight. Yeah, I'm with Harry on this. And, and I think a, a number of people may not agree, but my read of the Constitution is that the House gets the power to impeach, the Senate gets the power to remove. Executive privilege isn't even in the Constitution, right? It's right. a limited privilege that was later read into the Constitution. And so the idea, and, and remember also that the Supreme Court has said that, you know, the power of Congress is at its zenith, at, at its highest in impeachment. And so it, it it really feels to me like this is, you know, it's a red herring. It's a smokescreen that lets you, that lets people say, oh, this is going to go on forever and ever. We can't do that. When in fact, I think nothing could be further from the truth. I think this is the one moment in time where you could actually get a very quick decision by either the Senate or the presiding officer if, if Roberts had to do it. And I agree with you. He would he would work like crazy not to have to make that decision. But I think Roberts says you testify that all the reasons why we have executive privilege, they're just not as in play here when the president of the United States has been impeached. Yeah. Well, and I mean, to go to Anne's point, you know, the idea of executive privilege is to, you know, carve out this area of protection from you know, congressional intrusion, right, the separation of powers, which 
okay. Amazing. We're intruding here, definition. right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, this is like the, you know, this is the one place, as Anne said, that Congress is completely allowed to intrude um, into, you know, what what is up with the executive branch. They are they are basically sitting in judgment. So I agree that it, it's a, in kind of a philosophical way, the privilege does, is, not very applicable in this in this very specific and unique circumstance. All right, last question on witnesses. Uh, it, just a practical one. If they had one witness card to play, uh, you know, the, the Dems could get away with one. Who would, who would, and, and you know, we, we'll, we'll, they would get one, whoever it was. Who would you choose? Uh, Mulvaney. You go with, I would, that's actually what I was going to say. It's an interesting question. I think there's a risk to Mulvaney because they sure. know he's so pro-Trump. Right. Right. Whereas sure. Bolton, I think, is the safer bet because they have Fiona Hill's testimony and um, Morrison's testimony saying he said, call the lawyers, paper this, the drug deal. I'm not going to be part of this drug deal. Giuliani is a part of. Um, and so in some ways, I think it's a really interesting question of yeah. like, do you play the risky move, which is Mulvaney's going to walk in and say, get over it. We did this. Like, and I think you could get him essentially to say that. Or do you go with Bolton, who's going to say, you know, I knew it was wrong. I tried to stop it. I told my people to paper it. And then there's almost a Republican. You know, he's very much a hawk. He's very strongly in, in, in conservative circles. Someone saying, I knew it was wrong at the time and I tried to stop it. And so the, the yeah, question well, is. But it could stop at Giuliani is the thing. Pa- Todd, you had a, you had a well, thought. Why would you say the wild card about Bolton? I agree with both Anna and, and Asha, but the wild card about Bolton is the unitary executive and his theories of robust executive power. Right. I mean, he hates Trump. Trump humiliated him. Trump embarrassed him. They disagree substantively on the view, global view of the world. But uh, Bolton may not be so eager to do anything that undermines it, what he views as the proper balance between presidential and congressional authority in that Cheney-esque worldview. So I, I think there, there are risks on every side, but I, I guess I'd put my money on Bolton for the same reason that Ann said. But you know what's so interesting about what Todd just said? I think you're totally right. It is very likely that they could call Bolton and he gives the, the House managers every fact they want. And then and the ultimate question that he's asked by the, the Republican defense team, should the president be removed? The answer is no. Or he says something like, I think the Impoundment Act is unconstitutional, right? right? Yep. I think that the president is entitled to do with foreign aid whatever, <laughs> exactly. the, heck, whatever the heck the president yep. wants to do. And that's the risk with John Bolton. Because the one thing you can say, Mick Mulvaney is sneaky. He might not actually tell the truth. John Bolton will say exactly what he thinks. That's both an upside and a risk. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, these, 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 this may play out in the next week, and we only quickly touched on it, but I think the senator's questions will be also interesting and illuminating. We are out of time, or just about, on a, another conversation that I feel could go hours more. Um, as uh, uh, certainly uh, Paul and Asha know, but it might come as a surprise to Todd and Anne. We close our proceedings here with a question from viewers f- uh, that the feds have to answer in five words or fewer. Um, we're going to do dealer's choice on this one, and I'll say what is the I'll give you your five words easily and just ask, what is the over-under date uh, on which the vote uh, to acquit or convict uh, the president will occur? We play this game all the time with my five-year-old when we like, <laughs> <laughs> like what's the over-under on yeah. this? Um, I'm going to say next Friday. 
we play a different over-under game with our teenage boys, I will also say Friday. <laughs> yeah, let me change that too because it's not coming out till Monday. So let me. So I should say Friday. I should just say Friday. Yeah, no, because your Friday is good. Okay. Your Friday is good. Um, uh, Todd? I'd have to say Friday. Asha? I agree on Friday. What a boring finale. Maybe, <laughs> it, wasn't, maybe, <laughs> it, wasn't, maybe it wasn't that good a question. You know exactly what, you right. know what though? Uh, Steelers, was, this, this, was, this really was. It was, like, it, wasn't, it was like war, not a good poker game. You know because I will from, say yeah. Friday. Yeah. This comes a little bit from trying a lot of cases when you think like, oh, yeah. the case could go till next Wednesday. And then the, the jury gets the case Friday morning. Or like there's, there's like this, this natural push to get things done. Yeah. And we know Senate, Senator McConnell wants it done quickly. The I t- will say this: over under means if 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 the over under line were set on Friday and I had to bet, I'd bet over. That is, it yes, would go I, I, if yeah. if it goes one way, I think it goes over, yeah. not under. All right. Thank you very much to Paul and Asha Todd, and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also go to patreon.com slash TalkingFeds for additional material exclusive for supporters of the podcast. And you can check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com where you'll find full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks very much for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, Rebecca Lopatin, and Jenny Josephson. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.